I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You were listening to the Downtown Riders Jam podcast. So, in just a bit, you're going to hear the interview I did with Shannon McLeod, who is a very soft-spoken writer from Michigan. Um, it was a wonderful conversation. It's the kind of conversation that uh, I love at the podcast. We went deep into Shannon's process and why it is that she writes the way that she does. Um, the best interviews for me are when people leave and say they feel like they should give me money for therapy. Um, not because I have sent them over the edge, but because we have gone into the psyche of why they do the things that they do. I just find that stuff so fascinating. Making it even better, uh, Shannon was down from Michigan. Uh, she was giving a workshop at Etchings Fest, which is a, uh, was a one-day workshop put on by the Department of English at the University of Indianapolis and with Metonymy Media. Metonymy is one of the few for-profit companies that's run all by writers. Um, and they're here in Indianapolis, and they do lots of content creation and book writing and things like that. So they had given, they had allowed Etchings Press to use the back of its office. We set up a podcast studio in the basement, so it felt a little bit like The Killing Zone, um, some sort of weird horror movie. But the conversation was great, and we didn't talk a whole lot about her Shannon's latest 
chapbook called Pathetic, which you can buy from the University of Indianapolis from the Etchings Press. Um, but it's beautiful and amazing, and she is just a delight, a delight to talk to. Before we get to that, there's some business at hand. So the Geeky Press has just published its first book, Bad Jobs and Bullshit. You can go to thegeekypress.com backslash books and see all the books that we've done, but that's the most recent. We're also working on a second book called Faith Fully, which is another collaborative book. So the books that we do at the Geeky Press, we put out calls, people submit work to us, we take the best, and then we publish it, and everybody shares in the royalties equally. So we're really um, down with the independent publishing world. That's a lot. It's a big reason why I love having people like Shannon on because she is, um, she wrote a novel and she hasn't done anything with it. And she's written a, uh, working on a second novel and she hopes to do something with like, she is going through the process of developing her skills. She's doing the chat book. She's going out and doing things. So it's just, that's the best time of, for writers for me. It is the time when everything is coming together. It is the time when you're working through all of the things that you need to work through. We also, if you are in the greater Indianapolis area, we have daily, weekly, monthly, yearly events. We have a new reading series called the Fan Fiction Reading Series. So if you are in the fan fiction, you should check out our reading on October 28th. Um, We are all very excited. We are dressing up like characters from Star Trek, but we are taking fan fiction and fan poetry from any genre. So if that's a thing that you're into you should come out and join us. And if that's not, you should come out and listen to the people that are. We also have uh, the Faithfully Project, which is the second collaborative book that we're working on, which is Letters About Faith, or in my case, Lack Thereof. So we put out a prompt once a month. People write us letters and tell us how they feel about things. Um, And we think uh, it's been fascinating so far. And we're going to curate the best of those letters into a book at the end. So if you want to get involved in that project, you can so that is the merch, the events, the things, all of the stuff around the riders. But now I want to take you to my conversation with Shannon, who is in town from Michigan at the Etchings Fest. Enjoy. All right, so you teach high school. How long have you taught? This will be my fourth year teaching. Really? And where is that? That is in Wixom, Michigan. It is a sort of rural suburb of Detroit, if that seems to make any sense. Uh-huh. It's a very it's on the very outskirts of Detroit suburbs. And are you from there? I'm from Oak Park, Michigan, which is more of an entering suburb. So you it's so, a little more urban, but also still suburban. So you've been you lived there your whole life, like you grew yeah, up in. I've lived in the area my whole life. So, what were your what did your mom and dad do? My mom's a massage therapist, still is, um, and my father is a high school teacher as well. So you followed in the family footsteps. Yeah, about fifty percent of my family members on his side are teachers. Really? Yeah, it's in our blood. So, what were you like as a kid? Like, were you, did you read a lot? Were you active? Like, yeah, I read a lot. I suppose I was active in the sense that I was 
still somewhat outgoing, at least pre-puberty, which I think is the case for a lot of girls. Um, I always wanted attention and was dancing around for attention. Um, but I certainly was not athletically inclined, so maybe that's where the reading comes in. Did you, like, um, your mom and dad read to you a lot? Like, were they into that, like, the arty reading stuff, or did you sort of do that on your own? I remember my dad reading to me as a child, and we certainly had more books in the house than a lot of other kids growing up. Um, but I think it was something I mostly got into in the summers, because we would spend our summers in northern Michigan, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, so I'd leave my friends all summer, since my dad had the summers off, and we had four TV channels, and... Back in the good old days. Nothing else yeah. to do, so... That was where I had my first experiences of actually just sitting down and reading a whole book cover to cover. Yeah. What were you reading back then? Do you know? Like, what were your favorite books growing up? Boxcar Children. Or that was the beginning of my love of the narrative of the kid who runs away from home and lives off the land. <laughs> so it's every kid's fantasy of, yeah. like, I'm out of here, Mom and Dad. Exactly. And also, uh, the mixed-up files of Miss Basil E. Frankweiler was the more urban version of that, um, or city-based, I guess, because the kids go and live in an art museum, um, which was another dream of mine. To live in an art museum? Yeah. Why? I just love art museums. They're quiet. Yeah. And um, most people aren't going to interact with you in a rude way because everyone's there to kind of consume art and I think when you come into a space like that you're less likely to be an asshole so it is a so writing and reading like were you writing stories back then too or were you just sort of like taking the world in then because like when I was a kid I have everything I've ever written everything I've ever written filed in order like I was that. That's impressive. Yeah. Like, so did you know you wanted to be a writer from a young age? I, I was. There was two things for me. Um, I come from a baseball town, so my high school baseball coach put 150 guys in the major leagues. So it was like uber super baseball. And then I had this. My but my nickname on the team when I was young was the professor, because I always had like books with me, right? So I was always reading shit and then writing stories. So I thought I was going to be a major league baseball player who wrote literature. Yeah. It would have been. Neither one of <laughs> them have really happened. Yeah. In your life now, but it's okay. Play baseball like on a league of some sort. No, after I got hurt and stopped, I just stopped. If because if you do something really well, you don't want to do it kind of well. Like it's not yeah. enjoyable anymore. Um, Depends on where the motivation's coming from. Being the best was the motivation. Yeah, so okay. like playing in a beer league, I'm like, yeah. um, this is not fun. Uh, so were you writing? Like, did you? I didn't write. Or were you arty drawing? Like, yeah, I was more arty. I wanted to be an artist. Yeah, I don't know my why, but my parents were artists. What do you mean? Um, like painters? Yeah, they were both painters. Um, my grandmother, she created illustrations for uh, newspaper ads for different department stores. And my that job doesn't exist now. <laughs> uh, cars. Yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So and you, my grandfather's job as well, which was to hand illustrate cars you know it's all digital yeah so um actually there have been a few exhibits of his drawings more recently because people are interested mm -hmm. in hand-drawn illustrations and designs of cars since they don't exist anymore. yeah so you were so you had art as sort of a thing around you yeah so i really wanted to be an artist and um 
I'm pretty good with making something look realistic, but I realized in college that I had no vision for art. I can't, I, I don't know color theory, I can't come up with any original ideas, so I suppose if I was, were living a few generations in the past, maybe I could have followed in my grandmother's footsteps, but I decided to be a little more realistic. So, uh, where do you go to college at? University of Michigan. Oh, that breaks my heart. I'm from Ohio. Oh. So, your, I think your husband, uh, yeah, he was he like, oh yeah, I'm from, Ohio. wait, and he said, well, we drove down from Ann Arbor, and I thought. I don't know how this is going to go. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So I've been driving around Ann Arbor for the last five years or so in his car with Ohio license plates. I can't tell you how many times our car has been keyed. I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure. It's not a pleasant relationship between the two universities. So I I like to think that we're sort of star-crossed lovers. Yeah. Yeah. You've overcome. (laughs) So you go to um, Michigan. And I'm only saying the word because you're from there and you're on our podcast. Otherwise, I never say the word. Uh, what do you study? Well, I started out studying nursing because, again, I was trying to be realistic and uh-huh. wanted to make money. And I never wanted to have to financially rely on a man. Yeah. Um, that was my 18-year-old, like, very feminist view yeah. of things. And then I realized that blood scares the shit out of me. <laughs> So nursing is a bad I'm idea. Super squirmy, yeah. squeamish. So I, I don't know why I didn't realize that before. Because you thought um, you could do anything. Yeah, I guess so. Until they were I like had a blood. Glimmer of optimism, <laughs> and then I, I just kind of switched majors a few times. And I originally graduated with just an English degree without my teaching certificate. Uh, that I found that the only job I could get was as a receptionist in a hair salon. So I did that for a while. I worked in a call center for a few years, and then I went back and got my teaching certificate. You have the very traditional writing background where I did right. everything possible <laughs> to make any amount of money to not die. Yeah. Whatever that job was, I will do it happily. Well, you know, when I was little, I always thought, I want to have a whole lot of jobs because it just seems fun to have a whole lot of experiences. Yeah. And then when I went through, like, 12 different minimum wage, entry-level type jobs, I'm like, I don't want to yeah. have a million jobs. This is the worst no. thing ever. <laughs> it's my, my wife and I are in the middle of, she's in the middle of listening to my freak out because we've reached a place where comfortable we have a nice condo we live downtown like sort of all the things i wanted i never have time to write and i'm like ah like the existential horror of like asking the genie for world peace is that the aliens take over the earth (laughs) we made it like this is great like fuck well now that you've reached a sort of financial contentment do you still have the drive to write yeah oh yeah i have four book projects that are like half done, but there's just never time to sit down and do them. Yeah. So I'm very close to quitting everything and just mm-hmm. taking two years and seeing what we can do with that. That seems a little, you know, like you have to convince people it's not a midlife crisis when you're in your mid forties. Like I'm not melting down. I'm promise. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's I'm g- making sound decisions. Right. Like there's no motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. Not leaving my wife or 20 year old. Like this would be great. Like none of that. <laughs> like, so you you get an English degree, you graduate with English, and are you writing at that point? Like is that is like when does writing become a thing that you feel like you want to do? Um, it became a thing I wanted to do when I did this program 
after my second year of college in Maine called the New England Literature Program, mm -hmm. and that was where uh, we, a bunch of students lived in cabins in Maine without electricity or heat, it's cold, <laughs> and we hiked on up mountains, which is something I haven't done since nor want to. And it was mostly writing-based, so I mainly went there because I thought that it would be cool to live out in the woods and climb mountains, um, but then I found that I really loved writing, so that was probably the game-changer for me. So that's when I first allowed myself to take writing classes and get a little less realistic. Yeah. Um, think that it was something that was worth the time. When you were you writing fiction, nonfiction, poetry? Like, what were you writing up there, or just fiction writing? Fiction and nonfiction. I have been writing poetry for a long time, but that's just in the sense that I wrote a lot of terrible poems. Yeah. And, you know, Everybody goes through the emo years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that was that was super comforting for me in those years. So I guess that was really when um, the seed was planted yeah. of finding comfort and joy in writing. But it was that trip yeah. into Maine where you started thinking, like, do you, do you, when you write, because you're an artist, like, you started out sort of thinking visually, and I have this discussion with, up until I married my wife, who was a, a ballet dancer, many of the women that I dated were cinematographers or paint like and they always they thought of the world very differently right like it was always like you had to l wait till they got done with the whole story to understand what it meant mm. whereas I begin at the beginning there's a middle leading to a thing and then it ends yeah. do you when you sit down to write do you have that linear way through or are you sort of experiencing all of it sort of seeing how it comes together for you I suppose I'm more of a big picture person I do struggle when it comes to fiction with plot, and so last summer I was working on my second novel, and I forced myself, I was working with another writer, to actually plan the plot so that it could reach a middle and an end <laughs> at some point. Did it feel uncomfortable to do that? Like, did it feel yeah. unnatural? Yeah, it felt unnatural. It felt wrong in a way. Like, oh, I'm selling out. I'm planning my novel. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's because you you have that draw like that visualness to it and like the whole thing matters? Like in a painting, the whole thing matters. Yeah, I, I suppose so, because it does seem that some writers approach writing more almost mathematically where they're looking at um, here are all of the elements. Here's the beat. Here's where the yeah. plot begins. Exactly. Here, yeah. <laughs> and I could totally see how that would be comforting and it's wonderful. Not. It's not. No, no. <laughs> I guess it's just where the grass is always greener on the other side. Yeah. And I look at people who can create plot in a way that seems more driven by logic. Yeah. And I think, wow, that's great. I just have to fail 20 times yeah. and see which failure is the least... Yeah. Terrible, or makes the most sense. Does it make you feel like, like, are there moments where you're like, well, this can't be writing. I'm just like putting this stuff down and failing a lot, and then I found my way through. Like, does it create a an angst, or yeah. is that just sort of how you write? Like, have you just gotten used to like, well, I know this is this is my process. This is the way that I do it. I suppose so. I've thrown so much out at this point <laughs> that sometimes. I, you know, I'll look back at the first novel that I spent five years writing and think, 
god damn, what a waste of time. <laughs> but it gives me some perspective on drafts of shorter pieces where I'm working on essays or short stories, and then I throw out a scene, and I think, well, that's a whole lot less painful than an entire novel. So I think it's, you know, it's built up a thicker skin. Yeah. But you keep throwing stuff out. Yeah. Like there's, like that process just repeats itself. You're just more comfortable with it now. I like you expect so. to throw out 19 things before you find the 20th. I would like to think that that's changing, but probably not. Yeah. <laughs> I was just so one of the things. Here's why. Like I write straight through, and I sort of I have to know this, 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 and this, and I can get me to those four things. And I'll write like 5,000 words in a two-hour period, and then I won't be able to write anything for like two weeks, right? Because my writing partner will write 20 words in a day, and they're perfect, right? (laughs) And it'll take him five hours to do it because he just, and I'm just, I dump it. And then like a week later, I come back like an archaeologist and sort of shake it out and go, what the fuck? Because I know the point I need to get to, so I'm just going to throw everything down and then sort of figure out like, this gets me to there. So then is it pretty clear to you what pieces out of those 5,000 words Once I go back, yeah. yeah. When I first write them, I'm like, fucking genius. <laughs> right, Even 25 years later, I'm like, oh, you know, gold. That's the best part of writing. Yeah. The delusional yeah. high where everything you write is amazing. It really is like being a junkie. Like, I know it's not good. <laughs> I'm positive that none of it's going to be there. And then I walk away and, like, egomaniacal, like, I'm going into the world like, hello, world. Like, I've come with my words. And then I go back and I'm like, what is any of this? And there'll be, like, 200 words that I then take and can expand. And that's what then becomes the thing that leads me to the area. But it is... And then so I do. do you feel frustrated that that's the way writing works for you? Not. It took me a long time to understand that. I used to think I was a terrible writer. Now I know I'm a terrible writer with a process, right? Yeah. Like, I understand, like, oh, it'll hopefully get better. It'll at least be better than this. The second draft will be better than the first one. Right. The third one will be better than the second. Um, and it is a, I just assume that's how greatness happens. I'm assuming most people aren't. Mozart, you know, where they're putting shit down and they're like, perfect. Yeah. You know, like, play this for the next 300 years. Like, great. (laughs) So, when you wrote the first novel, what was that like? I suppose it was a lot of that delusional high of, this is awesome. Everything I write is amazing. Did you did you have something to say? Like when you sat down, did, like what made it start? Like what was the thing that turned on the faucet? Oh, I feel so long ago now. I'm trying to think. Um, I suppose it was that I was at a point in my life where I had just left college, and you know, I left this prestigious university with a meaningless degree and I couldn't get a job and then when I got a job it was at the salon where all everyone who works there was in the same family and it was so like almost emotionally traumatic how dramatic this um this environment was and so I just felt really frustrated um with like oh this is adulthood um, so it sucks. It's, yeah, it, it does not sucks. get better. It does not get better. And 
And um, the first novel that I wrote, it was a younger character, um, a girl in her 20s, and then an older character who was, I believe, about 40. Um, and it alternates between the two. So I suppose, looking back on it, I wasn't thinking this at the time, but now as I'm analyzing myself five years ago, I think maybe that was a way of balancing those two places that, you know, the place I was in and the place that I feel I'm headed toward. Yeah. And it's, I always find it funny when, so the thing that I never know when I write, I don't think writers know this, is like, you kind of know what you want to say, but you don't know what you're going to say. Like, right. you're not going to sit down and be like, I'm going to, exp like, tell you the definitive experience of the 24-year-old woman in the modern yeah. world. Like, that's my book. It just kind of like, you just, there's like a, an annoyance or like a, you're in an oyster and there's just like this right. little rubbing thing and you're, you're like, right. it has to come out. What are these feelings? Yeah. And like, what the fuck? Really, most of the writing that I do is what the fuck? Like something gets in my head. Um, I was working on this book that's not finished and I, and I had a thing and I thought I was going to write an essay and I wrote, a, I wrote another book about that thing, and I had to have to come back to the other thing. So I have this book sitting in a drawer, and I've told people, like, I didn't even know that was a fucking book. Yeah. I thought it was like, I just need to get this idea out. I wrote it for a summer. I wrote, like, 70,000 words in a summer. Yeah. It's terrible. Like, it's, like, it's in a drawer. I haven't looked at it, but I've shown it to some people, and they're like, eh, I need some work. I think maybe you could do some revisions yeah. on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe don't let anybody see this. Yeah. Don't tell people you're a writer and be like, see? Because they're going to not think that that happened. Um, but it was a, I didn't know either one of them were books. Like, they just were yeah. things that were, like, started to come out. And all of a sudden, there was just a mountain of words that seemed to go together. And in retrospect, once I go back to edit it, I'm like, okay, this is what where I think this is going. Like, yeah. did you know where yours was going? Or were you just kind of putting the characters down and seeing I didn't really know know where it was going, and then after I finished the first draft, I looked at it and I thought, oh, there needs to be more plot. So I added more threads of plot, and one thing that I do a lot, one of my problems as a writer is that I create these problems for the characters that raise the stakes and create expectations in the reader, but then I somehow, like, get scared and back away and nothing comes of them, so instead of escalating the situation in the way you would imagine it to in another narrative that is interesting, um, they kind of just dissolve, and you're like, oh, wow, there was this really interesting setup, and then it all fizzled away, and... <laughs> I think that the first novel it was a lot of things almost happening. This almost happened. Uh -huh. And then this character almost confronted this issue, but didn't. So Are you non-confrontational in your life? Probably um, unsatisfying for the reading. And yes, I am. Oh, thanks for Do you think calling that's... me out. Well, <laughs> I'm just listening to you talk about the writing, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I tell my students all the time, I don't know if it's true or not. But I think it's true, which is your writing reveals who you are, not not the ways you do it, not the but the the writing. When I read the thing, I know yeah. 
you can read, you sort of yeah, understand. You can see who that is. Right. And the scary thing is your reader probably knows things about you that maybe you don't even know about yourself in that way. Right. Like you, I just met you, right. what, 10 minutes ago? <laughs> I'm already like, you feel like you don't like confrontation. You out. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that something that you... Is that happening in the second book? Is that happen like do you like if I ask you now to think about it? The second book since I plotted it out beforehand and I had a very specific outline and had some help uh, consulting with me on the outline, I think it is less so like that. But I can see moments where it can get bigger. So you had to have somebody else say, here's yeah. the time when you need to confront this. Exactly. <laughs> so no, it's yeah. exactly the same. You've just <laughs> learned to bring in other angry people to be like, no, here's the yeah. touch point. <laughs> it, oh, man. And being more confrontational or at least assertive is something that I'm working on in my personal life or, or have been for my whole life. Um, but it's interesting to see or realize now that you've called me out on it, that it's something I really need to deal with in my writing life, yeah. too. Maybe, but it may just be the thing, right? Like, it, because a lot of life is not confronting exactly. things. And that's what I would say about yeah. this first novel, and I thought, I don't know if this is just an excuse, because yeah. I don't want to rewrite this a tenth time. Right. Um, but I do feel that way in some level as well. I but, think yeah. life is way more about not confronting things than it is about confronting yeah. them. As There's a, so many almosts in life. Yes. As somebody that is accused of being hyper-aggressive and confrontational in my... Not like mean, but like... <laughs> I like to dig into the stuff because mm-hmm. the stuff is where... You want to poke it. Though. Yeah, like that's where we are. I mean, I, I, I've, I tell my students, like, love isn't being nice to somebody. Love is when you look over and the person next to you has fallen asleep and drooled on your shoulder because that's a thing they don't do with anybody else. Mm-hmm. We're very nice and polite in the world with everybody, and you're never really sure if that's real or not. Yeah. But when you're asleep and you drool on my shoulder, that is as real as it gets. Like, that's the moment that love happens because oh, you're like... Right, because that's yours. Nobody else gets that. And if you fucking Facebook that or Instagram that, you're a dick because you've taken this thing that, right, is sort of intimate and made it whereas we're all nice. So I think that that non-confrontational thing is probably angsty for people as they read it, and they're probably mm-hmm. yelling at the character. Oh, because they just want to get their own yeah. confrontational you know this. out through reading. You know that, right? I guess on some level. <laughs> um, you watch TV? Oh, yeah. Have you ever watched a show where they almost get together and you're like, why won't you right. just say the thing? Exactly. That's really frustrating. That's why I know that my writing would be really frustrating so for you're right. readers. <laughs> but it's frustrating because life is frustrating and yeah. people are afraid of rejection, being alone, like all of the things. And so it's easier just to go, well, right. it would have been if I wouldn't have worked out. Yeah. Or like, if I'd have done it, it would have happened. Like, well, then fucking do it. So, how do you go from your worthless degree at the hair salon to teaching high school? Like, what, like, is it because your family were teachers and you said this is a a good career? Or did you want to teach? Well, I did do one year in the teaching program when I was in undergrad for my four years of my bachelor's degree. That was one of the many uh, majors that I had after nursing. 
so when I left the program, I remember I had my exit interview with the, the I don't know if it was the dean of the program. Chair, and probably. I, I cried when I left because I just said, I, I'm not ready to be a teacher. And I kind of half-heartedly believed that. Part of me thought, no, I'll never be a teacher because I see the way things are going for teachers. My dad was, you know, headed toward um, retirement, but I, I saw the progress of, of what the career was like from when I was younger to uh, Yeah, now. it's terrible. Yeah, it, it's not great. Yeah. So Lots I, of paperwork and everybody hates you. Like, I'm sad that I'm leaving this profession, um, but with a little bit of relief and thinking, I'm going to find something better. Yeah. Um, but then after a couple of years of shitty jobs and this feeling that I did still want to teach yeah. despite all of the bullshit, um, I, I went back and finished my degree and it only took a year and I was still living in Ann Arbor. So, um, I just kind of picked back Masters? with the degree. I just got the certification okay. actually. Oh, right. So this is the Not new sort of degree, but yeah. I got the teaching certificate, um, pretty quickly and then I was able to start teaching. So what grades do you teach? Right now I teach 11th and 12th, uh, but I've taught 7th through 12th. So I taught 8th grade and oh, I taught really? freshman. I taught the kids that were um, who had failed all the tests. I was sort of the last stop. Like, that was yeah. who I was trained to teach. Um, d- literature, writing, what do you teach? Like, um, is it a creative writing class or is it an English? No, it's lit? English 12. Mm-hmm. Um, but I teach at this uh, technical high school, so okay. it's like a trade school. Yep. Um, so part of my job is teaching English 12. The other part is working in... Uh, the culinary program mm-hmm. or automotive program. Helping them learn, like, practical writing and, skills. Yeah, yeah, writing skills, like writing up uh, service Everything. for... Yeah. yeah. Or working on the resume, cover letter, things yeah. like that. So it's sort of a support role as well. Yeah. No, it's really important. Um, and I, I've talked about this with other teachers. Like, when I, I... I think I'm substantially older than you. When I was growing up, community college used to be a thing, and it was a two-year degree, and it was meant to be a trade school, and you mm-hmm. went there to learn trades, and they would have professional writing courses. Today, they've turned it into this, like, feeder into a four-year, and they've sort of... Yeah. The associate degree doesn't mean anything really anymore, and they've take, they've tried to take this professional writing and turn it into, like, you should read Dante, and really, right. maybe, that's but probably not. For yeah, like, if you want to read Dante, that's great, mm-hmm. but here's why writing matters being able to understand and read the newspaper and why the newspaper is written the way that it is matters and what's real and what's untruthful Mm -hmm. matters not Whitman doesn't matter to everybody Um, so do you and you've been doing that for four years how long uh, the first two years of my teaching career, I taught in a traditional high school. Well, it was actually K through uh, twelve building. Wow! So I taught small seventh, um, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade English. Or I'm sorry, eleventh grade English. Yeah. I taught psychology. I taught computers. <laughs> I taught um, a career prep class. Yeah. How many? Uh, how many? Co teacher or special ed support. How many uh, students so were in this do, school? Do you see why I, I might have left that? Yeah. Job? <laughs> was there like 300 kids in the school? So like a rural uh, place? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It's a rural area. Um, there were, I believe, three or four hundred yeah. in the high school. Oh, in the high school? Yeah. Holy shit! And you were doing all those different things, and all the different grades. Yeah. That's crazy. And I started a slam poetry team. Of course you did. Club. Because nothing's less confrontational (laughs) than slam poetry. (laughs) 
Did you do that with them, or did you just teach them how to do it? Yeah, I, like, taught them how to do it and pretended I knew how to do it. Yeah. Um, but the students were awesome. They didn't need my help. Have you been to the Green Mill in Chicago? The oldest poetry slam in the country oh. is run by Mark Smith. The Green Mill uh, was Al Capone's bar. So it's set up. There's like a piano behind the bar. Uh, they have jazz all the time. And every Sunday night from 7 to ten a, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. It's been going on for like 27 years. Wow. Uh, he's, Mark Smith actually started slam poetry. So that didn't exist until he created this thing. So is that connected to Louder Than Bomb? Could be. I think I, I've heard his name, so maybe... He's the dude. He gave a big TED Talk on it. Oh. Yeah. Uh, and um, Slamworks is the nonprofit that he runs where they oh, teach, okay. they use poetry to teach, like, corporations and people, like, how to communicate. Yeah. Which is really okay. interesting. Wow. Um, so if you're ever looking for something to do, go to Chicago in the Green Mill on a Sunday. Take your Monday off because it goes late. <laughs> <laughs> and it's rowdy. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's... It's a lot of fun. It was what I, that was when I realized I wanted to be a writer. I wrote a piece about him when I was 21 or 22, just out of college. And there was like 300 people at this event. And it's a bar on a Sunday night. And people, I don't even like poetry. And like, people are fucking hanging off the rafters. And we're all shit-faced drunk. And he lets me be a judge. And like, I get booed. And people are throwing shit at me. And I left him. I did. I left and I was like, holy shit, this is everything I've ever imagined it to be. For which none of that has ever come true for me. <laughs> like, even the book we wrote, like, it read by like 18 year old guys. I'm like, I literally could not have chosen a worse thing to write my first book about. So when you teach these kids, do they know that you're a writer? No. Why? I teach under a different name. Really? I'm too paranoid about getting fired. Really? Yeah. You, there are so many headlines about teachers getting fired or, like, um, a kid takes a video of a teacher saying something that out of context sounds terrible. Right. Now, I, I will admit there are a lot of bad teachers that, you know... Sure, should be fired. Are, right. Know, <laughs> so that sort of technology does the education system a service by documenting that. Um, but I am very paranoid. Um, I, I still try not to write anything that could get me fired, but I, I wouldn't feel very comfortable knowing that my students and their parents maybe were reading my writing, and if it didn't jive with their personal really? philosophy or religion or something, um, that they might, I don't know. That non-confrontational thing I'm goes, exactly. it's everywhere. Oh it's everywhere. Like, I almost, um, I was almost suspended when I was a junior in high school for an S. We, we had to write a short story. Uh, and I wrote a, a story called The End of Time, and it was about how there was no God. And I almost, so like as a junior, I was like, and then and then as a senior for my final project, I wrote a, uh, a, a, file, a sequel to it <laughs> called um, Purgatory Discovered. Yeah, like it was like, so I did the opposite. I'm like, fuck yeah. it, throw me out of school, whatever. I'm the shortstop on your baseball team. Like, we're good. <laughs> uh, so they don't know. So that's, do you find that odd as like you're writing? Do you think like, well, I can't go here because like, does it Im impact how you write? Yeah, probably. But not consciously. Um, Yes. Yeah, so or no, not going to admit. Who was reading my writing recently was like, "Oh, you got to, you know, you got to push this further. You got to 
um, like, make this sexier. Like, this is about sex. Where's the sex? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm scared. Really? <laughs> yeah. And at first I was thinking, oh, well, I'll be uncomfortable if my parents read it. But and I thought, oh, they'd get over it. I, I'd be okay with that. But I think it really comes down to my paranoia that I'll be fired and never have a job again. You'd be the most famous teacher in America. You'd finally be fired. A teacher would be fired for not discussing weird things. Like you were not Maybe dating I a student. I expose myself. Right. Here's my writer identity. <laughs> just come to school one day with your books. Yeah. Well, some of my former students um, from the, the school, first school where I taught, they came to my chapbook release reading over the summer. And it felt, it felt a little strange. And it, it was really heartwarming that they were there it meant so much to me but I thought I wonder if this is really uncomfortable for them to see their teacher in a different light uh, and um, did you ask to him? read these personal essays um, no I, I haven't gotten the, that insight yet but um, I bet what they would say is it was cool to see you as you yeah and you know what then a few weeks later I saw one of my former college teachers do a poetry reading. I didn't realize he would be reading poetry that night. And all of his poems were about sex. And I was thinking, like, oh, this is a little cognitive dissonance here. Um, but it's okay. Yeah. yeah, it is okay to know that your teachers are humans. But yeah. I think it goes along with the paranoia of, like, uh, teachers are under attack by the media. And... You don't want to do anything that'll get you fired that makes me feel really on guard. So um, you grew up around artists. Yeah. And you have this desire to, like, not be confrontational yeah. and not push your art because people might be uncomfortable by it. But really, it's not people, it's you. You're uncomfortable by yeah. what might happen. I'm scared. I'm paralyzed by fear, and I realize this. Yeah. Like, every facet of my life really? is driven by fear. Do you think that yeah. makes you write? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I was... Even thinking about when you were, when you were talking about. When I was psychoanalyzing um, you. Yeah. <laughs> You're hey, delving into my soul. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we support the geeky press. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were talking about that feeling when you're done writing and you're on top of the world, I thought, yeah, that's why I love writing. You get to be by yourself. You're not inhibited by other people being around yeah. you, which as someone with some social anxiety that um that feels very freeing yeah um so that's definitely and you control it exactly i mean there's nothing that happens Mm -hmm. without (laughs) and when you feel uncomfortable you just go nope that thread's over yeah people like edit it out like nope we're just never gonna touch that again it's just gonna sit there I will say, I, was, I have mentioned Infinite Jest multiple times. I've never finished it. I'm going to finish it someday. But there are, I am told, many threads that are not wrapped up in that oh, book. Oh, really? Yeah. Ooh, One of the okay. 100 best books I, I of the last century. That, um, that I could pull off a David Foster Wallace move. But it sounds but like you got lots of threads. It's yeah. It's out there. I got a lot of threads. But don't get finished. It's like one of those blankets where all the threads are <laughs> hanging out and loose. So what are you doing in five years? I'm not asking now. you out. Like, <laughs> in the future? Yeah, like in five years. Are you still teaching? Are you still doing high school? Like, do you, or do you know? Oh, I feel like every new school year leaves me 
questioning the future of teaching because you know as you know you start with professional development which is supposed to make you feel inspired and ready to teach and it's always soul crushing and it's not until you actually get the kids that you feel like you know why you're doing what you're doing um but a lot of people get burned out very quickly and i made it two years two years okay all right wow so i beat you you did the administration i couldn't i can't I can't with the administrators. I tell people all the time, administrators are why they're Republicans. Because I'm like, you're not helping. You're not helping. Literally, if you would get out of my way, I could teach these kids. And I know they're well-meaning. And in some ways, they're being told by other administrators what to do. Right. They're the middlemen. I would never want to be an administrator because you have no direct control, at least when you're a teacher. Right. You you're kind of the end of the line there and you get to work with the kids directly. But if you're an administrator, you have to follow what you're being told, whether you believe in it or not. And you sometimes have to stifle teachers. Yeah. A lot of the time. Yeah. And I can't, I also don't, I'm not very, unlike, I think we're different in this way. Like the minute somebody tells me not to do something. You want to do it. I don't only want to do it. You have to I do do it. And then I tell people that I did it, and then I stare at them for a while. Yeah, and then I'm just like, so what are we doing now? Like, what else should I not do? kind of like, oh, they made it out. Like, if I did this, the world would end, and I want to prove that the world's not That this is fucking stupid. Why are we having this goddamn discussion? And I can't. I can't. That just, and as a writer, like, anytime I find myself saying, I can't say this then I feel like I have to say it because mm-hmm. there's something that's making me not. And it's generally a force that whether I'm, whether I know why it is or not, I just think, no, as a writer, you don't get to fucking tell me what I can and can't say. Yeah. Um, so teaching is very hard with that. Yeah. And it seems because of that reading uh, reason, a lot of the most creative and passionate teachers leave because they're being stifled. So that makes me really worried about, do you think you'd go back and get like an MFA or something so you could teach college? Yeah, I've thought about it. Yeah. Um, right now, though, my husband's looking for. Well, he he just finished his PhD. Um, He's at my alma mater. Oh. I went to Miami University. Cool. Oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's there for a year, um, but he's looking to teach college, and um, a lot of his cohort mates or his classmates have quit after many years of looking for a job teaching college or just really struggling. I mean, there's so many adjunct positions now, but not so many that are stable. So I'm seeing that right now, and that scares me. I think I would really enjoy teaching college-level writing, but I don't know. I just don't know. One of the things that's... So we're in Metonymy Media. We're in the basement of Metonymy Media, uh, which is they're all writers. Most of them have MFAs. They may all have MFAs. And Ryan and I, Ryan, uh, who runs um, Metonymy, part of why we do the Geeky Press and we're looking to do this nonprofit is so that we can... There's Being in the creative middle class is almost impossible these days because Mm -hmm. there aren't mechanisms and systems where people who write can have jobs. Yeah. Metonymy is great because that's what they do. They they write. They're not a marketing company. They they write for people. Yeah. Um, have you thought about that as a gig? Well, Starting your thing? 
considered it, but a another thing that worries me about the um, prospect of writing professionally as my career, I worry that it wouldn't be fun for me anymore. Yeah. And I, I like that writing's my hobby right now, so... You're on your. Have you published a second book, or are you finishing it? You're finishing your second book. I yeah, finishing second book. Yeah. Haven't probably never will publish the first one. Uh -huh. Second oh, okay. one. Um, I I don't know. I think there's a little more promise since there's a plot. Yeah. That makes sense and doesn't. But that's not a plot, hobby. If you're on your second book, that's beyond a hobby. What would you call it? A you're a writer. <laughs> no, like that's what you do. You're teaching to pay the bills, but you're a writer. That's what I would say. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. This is why people say I'm aggressive. I'm like, yeah. no, here's what you are. God damn it. Say it. Say you're a writer. I'm so non-confrontational. <laughs> you're like, Fine. I don't even want to call myself a writer. <laughs> I make words I'm in my spare time. I'm trying to suck up as little resources as possible and not be a burden on this planet. I, That's really my... All the That's where you are in five years. My, just trying to eat trying and drink to. less and less. Yeah. So the world goes on and everything's fine. None of my characters interact with each other. They just ex they sit in their houses. It's like the worst Sims game ever. Yeah. Like they're just like in the house, like eating and sleeping. I probably love playing a Sim game. Sims game that way. I think that's why I love like the cooking shows and HGTV because nothing bad ever happened. Right. And, like, there's food at the end. And yeah. everybody's like, it looks, look at this. There are no conflicts. Right. And they have that very soft, like, and then this happened. It's wonderful. Exactly. Have a good day. You know what's going to happen at the end. <laughs> and it's always going to be great. So, you're getting ready to go teach a workshop. Um, so, I'm, one more thing, and then we're going to go. And thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. Um, What do you think you're going to do with your writing? Like when you, if you, like, you're, or are you just sort of looking at the next project? I get the sense that you probably have thoughts and plans that you don't mm -hmm. talk about a lot. Yeah, I mean, speaking of me not being able to say I'm a writer, that first novel I spent five years writing and didn't tell anybody right. and didn't have any friends that were writers. It was only in the last year that I've started to meet other writers because I can like identify as a writer now. Um, so I, I always have plans for projects. I'm also, along with that second novel, I'm working on a linked short story collection. Um, I wrote a play last winter. I'm always working on stuff. Tell me more about how you're not a writer. Kind of, <laughs> kind of looking for ways to share it. Yeah. Um, you know, like anybody who writes, I would like people to read it. I enjoy most reading novels, so that's what I would ultimately like to publish. I would like to publish novels that people sit down and read and enjoy, and it makes their lives a little more peaceful. <laughs> so after you leave here, we're going to talk because... I know lots of writers, and there are lots of people here that are writers, and so we want you to meet all those folks all right, so wonderful. that you do things with words. Uh, I am getting out of the house more often That's good. Days. That's yeah. good. That's step one is leaving the house. Yeah. Then step two is talking to them. Yeah. So we'll, 
just gotten over that. Yeah, as well. we'll do that. Well, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. All right. Have Good luck with the workshop. Oh, thanks. Well, there you have it. That was our conversation with Shannon. You cannot, it's impossible to not like her. Very sweet, very kind, very smart. Um, just one of those writers that I could talk to all day. Like this is a recurring theme. Most of the people that we end up interviewing, I um, really enjoy talking to. Don't forget, you can buy her new chapbook, Pathetic, from Etchings Press. And you can find her website if you go read the introduction to what we have here. You can click on that at shannon-mcleod.com. Don't forget, at the Geeky Press, we have our book, Bad Jobs and Bullshit, that is out. Every time you buy a copy, you are supporting all the writers that are in the book. We share the royalties equally. So the more you buy, the more you are supporting writers. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can come to any of our events. Uh, we have a couple coming up. The most, um, we have some happy hours and some salons that are happening around town in Indianapolis. If you were there, if you want to submit to our fan fiction reading, you don't have to be in Indianapolis. If you have fan fiction, you can send it in. And if we choose it, we'll have a proxy reader and record it. And you can see your stuff being performed live. Uh, if you would like to be involved in the Faith Fully Project, you can go to thegeekypress.com backslash books and click on Faith Fully, and all the information is there. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you keep coming back. Hope you spread the word. That's the best way for us to increase our audience, and I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, have a great day. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.